I just wanted to speak today really on Isaiah 61. And when the, when the leaders in Eastbourne first spoke to me about the idea of speaking on a Sunday morning, um, I did what maybe some of you would do, where you, I kind of said, mm, maybe next year, maybe when things are simpler, maybe when things are more straightforward. But it, yeah, but it never happens. And when they said it was on Isaiah 61, I, um, I knew I was in big trouble because Isaiah 61 is my favorite passage in the Bible. I absolutely love it. Abs- it's such a brilliant passage. And as soon as they said that, I thought, I've got to do it now because it is my favorite passage in the Bible. And the first time I ever heard it spoken from the front, I was at an event a bit like New Day, probably a Bible Week event. I think I was about 12 or 13. And someone from the stage read Isaiah 61. And it gave me goosebumps. I just thought, I thought, I cannot believe that's in the Bible. That is so cool. I cannot believe it's in the Bible. It was so powerful. And it gave me courage. It made me feel so empowered and courageous. It gave me a real passion for the poor. Um, I just felt just just the power of the words, really. And it still does. Whenever I hear Isaiah 61, it still gives me goosebumps. Um, But I've also been on a bit of a journey, I feel like, with this passage over the past few years, and I wanted to share a bit of that with you too. But I'm going to read it now, and if you've been in church for years and years, and you've heard this passage, and you've sung this passage in worship songs, just try and hear the words afresh now, just for the power power of it. So it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Just an amazing chapter in the Bible, really, and it goes goes on from that as well. But I just want to zone in, really, on the God of the brokenhearted, the God of Isaiah 61. And I just wanted that throughout this morning convince you of three things about the God of the brokenhearted. And the first is that the world just desperately needs the God of the brokenhearted, doesn't it? And the second is Jesus is the God of the brokenhearted. And thirdly, that we partner with the God of the brokenhearted. So as we've just been going through Isaiah, um, we've got to a point now where where God is using Isaiah to prophesy to a people who have been severely humbled by chapter 61. They've been brought low. They've lost their homes, their neighborhoods. They've lost their family businesses. Um, They've lost the inheritance they wanted to pass on to their children. All of their security, all of their social status has gone. And all of the things that make us think either one of us is good or better, all of our social system has been disrupted because they've been taken off and they've been brought back and everything's everything's been brought low. And even worse than that, the reason that they're brokenhearted we know from reading up until this point, is that it's the judgment of God. They have brought disaster on themselves. They're absolutely crushed, but it's their own doing. They've pushed God away. They've distanced themselves from him. 
And that distance from him has resulted in just personal and very public and very humiliating disaster for them. And they're in despair. And they've got no obvious way back to God. This is before Jesus. There's no, there's no clear rescue plan. There's no obvious way of how they're going to get back in his good books almost. It feels like they've just been uh, just stripped of everything that gives them self-worth, really. And they've only got themselves to blame. It's not the result of anyone else's doing. It's the righteous judgment of God as they've pushed him away. And it's so interesting that God speaks to him through the words of Isaiah 61. He speaks to this group of people and who are brokenhearted as a result of their own doing. And he still does. He still speaks to those people who are brokenhearted as a result of their own sin. And he comes to us in that too. But if we zoom forward a bit to who this prophecy also applies to, and we scan forward 700 years, so it's about 30 AD, time of Jesus. It's the same patch of land. We've got a people living under foreign rule, and they're facing the silence of God. The prophets have gone quiet. Everything's gone quiet. They think, is is rescue coming after all? What's happening? They've got the silence of God, and they're beginning to doubt the rescue plan. And if we go forward another 2,000 years, we've got the God of the brokenhearted, and this time he's speaking through Isaiah 61 to brokenhearted people in present day. And eight years ago, he was speaking to a girl who was 13 years old called Elizabeth, and she's sitting in a brothel in Southeast Asia. And she applied for a summer job. And instead of being taken to the summer job, she's been taken to a brothel cell. She's been brought up in a Christian family. And now she's faced with a situation where she's been told that you either serve the guys that we send to you or we starve you. That's the deal. And she's she's crushed and she's sitting there, but she remembers God. And on the wall of her cell, she writes Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? She writes out all of Psalm 27 to remind her of the God who sets the captives free. She's brokenhearted. She needs rescue. And he comes to her. We'll come back to her later. And to me, as a teenager reading Isaiah 61, it was really clear cut that Elizabeth, trafficked girls, girls sitting in brothels to say that they are brokenhearted and that my job and our job was to go to them, which I absolutely still believe. But it's really interesting, as we read in a minute, that when Isaiah 61 gets shouted from, the roof, <coughs> shouted from the rooftops, it's to Elizabeth, it's to me, it's to you, it's to the, it's to the Israelites, it's to everyone, who's, it's to everyone um, that it's shouted from the rooftops in Luke 4. Because we've got a global problem. I don't know if you know it from the staff rooms that you sit in or just from classrooms or chats in the playground. We've got a global problem with brokenheartedness, haven't we? And we can see continually through Jesus' ministry that he's concerned with condition of people's hearts. And the fact that we need to be bound up too is great news for mission, not bad news. We need to be bound up. Elizabeth needs to be bound up. There is a condition in every heart that needs to be binded up. And I read Isaiah 61, but wanted to be the strong messenger of it. I wanted to be the one that went. And I remember many times having people pray this chapter over me. And probably, when I think it felt like for a little while, it felt like Isaiah 61 was stalking me. Every time I got prayed for it, it felt like people said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on you. And I thought, wow, God, you're really ramming home your point. Okay. 
And when I was about 11 weeks pregnant with um, our first child, I went to a prayer and fasting event um, up in Peterborough with Andrew. Um, and so, yeah, I was 11 weeks pregnant, and not for the first time at prayer and fasting, I was secretly eating. I didn't make it past, past, past the first day. This time, at least, I had an excuse that I was pregnant. But can I just say, for secret eating at prayer and fasting, do not choose hula hoops in the toilet. Because um, <laughs> I was sitting there in a toilet cubicle, crunching my way through a pack of hula hoops, loudest food you could probably choose to eat. And then afterwards, you've got to do the walk of shame past every godly woman who's queuing for the toilet. <laughs> and it wasn't like I was even showing either. So they'd obviously just heard me crunch my way through my pack of hula hoops thinking, tum, 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 tum. <laughs> and um, so I was at prayer and fasting. I went back into the ministry time. I was feeling really nervous. I think sometimes after you, once you get pregnant, you have this moment, you think, oh my goodness, I don't think I'm ready for this. And is this going to change my life? Yes. And, uh, and I felt really anxious about what it meant. I had all these passions and all this passion for mission. And I thought, what's this going to mean for my life? And I went back into the ministry time. And Tom Shaw, who's the leader from the Canterbury Church, came up to me and said, Rachel, I just feel like I really need to pray for you. And I really feel God's given me Isaiah 61. And he prayed, Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on you because God has anointed you to preach good news to the poor. And I thought, oh, phew. My mission's not changing. Nothing's changing. I'm God's, you know, everything's going to stay the same. This is going to fit in with my mission, Isaiah 61. But over the past few years, I feel like instead of being the strong messenger of Isaiah 61, I have become the most needy recipient of Isaiah 61 I would have ever thought. And I have just desperately relied upon these words to come to me and I've not been the strong one. I've been the needy recipient of it. And I think last time I came here a couple of years ago, I would have spoke a little bit about our children. And I'm not going to spend ages on it today. <clears throat> but particularly with our daughter over the past two years, our little girl Anna is, um, she's just turned four. And I feel like there have been just moments of almost physically painful brokenheartedness over what's happened with her. And Anna had um, a lot of seizures between when she was about one and three. But all the time that she seemed to be having these regular seizures, um, she was having lots of health visitor visits and paediatrician visits to check on her development. And it seemed to actually be, she was doing really well. She was hitting milestones and we were really encouraged because our older son had um, gone through, has gone through a lot of developmental difficulties and is quite severely autistic. And we felt like with Anna that we'd, almost, we'd avoided that. And at two and a half, it was almost like she just hit a wall. And week by week, she lost play skills. Almost all of her speech went. Um, her eye contact. She stopped recognizing her brother. She, um, physical things became very difficult. So for Anna, her walking became unstable last December. Um, she struggled to walk up the stairs, to reverse down ladders, to do very basic skills, to feed herself. And um, we are, we are really hope, genuinely hopeful for Anna. We've had huge encouragement with how Zeke's done in the past year. But at four, at, we were hoping that it would be the sort of age where we'd be doing ballet lessons and she'd be making friends before she started school and 
all of those normal things that you expect for having children. And we're back at a place where we're needing to help quite a bit with feeding, that we're trying to teach her to clap and trying to teach her where her nose is and to go back to really some of those 12, almost 12-month-old 12 skills. And I thought I was passionate about Isaiah 61 before, about being a strong messenger. But I've never been so grateful for Isaiah 61 because I am brokenhearted, but he binds me up. He comes to me. He comes to you. He is the true, thorough binder of the brokenhearted. He's so good to us, isn't it? There have been times just that even with Anna, we went for drives. I used to do that drive to Berlin Gap. So over from Eastbourne, Berlin Gap, all the way back, try and get me to sleep in the back. And it just felt like at the depths of it, it was just like waves of overwhelming grief just coming over me. And I did the drive in sunglasses just so that I, it was the time I could face forward and cry and they couldn't see me because they were in the seats behind. And I look back and I think, you were there. You were there. I didn't know it always at the time. But he was with me. He hasn't left me. He thoroughly sits beside me. He thoroughly binds me. And these words that I thought were about me being strong aren't. They're about him being strong and about him binding me up. I'm so grateful. And maybe you, like me, have always read this passage before as like first and foremost about us as a prophecy about us going to the poor, us binding up the brokenhearted, us rescuing the captives, us going to the downtrodden. And actually, it is one of the most powerful mission statements, isn't it, for the church? It's read over and over again, and it's a powerful mission statement for us. But to make this, first and foremost, a prophecy that is about Rachel Wilson, or about Jane Witts, or about John Bowyer, is to leapfrog over the true, the most powerful fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And it's actually to lose its power, first and foremost. It's to leapfrog over who it really is, first and foremost, about. We're secondarily. We can say this over each other, but it's primarily about somebody else. And as we've gone through this series on Isaiah, we've seen Isaiah prophesy into the political situation that's staring him in the face, We've seen that by chapters 40 to 55, he's talking about physical rescue for the Jews and completely, completely accurately, whole amazing details about how that rescue is going to happen, all of them fulfilled. But then he's moving to talking about a deeper spiritual rescue that needs to happen in human hearts. And it's like by this point, we're just getting whispers of Jesus' name, isn't it? As we're going through, in Isaiah 53, we're told of a boy who needs grows up, He's led like a lamb to the slaughter. He doesn't give a verbal defense. He's buried with the wicked. He's pierced for our transgressions. As we read it in retrospect, it's amazing. It's like the whispers of Jesus' name as we go through the book are getting louder and louder. Isaiah doesn't realize it, but as we're reading it in retrospect, we can see his name just getting louder and louder. It's all pointing to a person. And by chapter 61, we're not getting whispers of Jesus' name anymore. It's like he's yelling his name. It's all 700 years in advance. But it's like we're hearing Jesus' name shouted through the book of Isaiah. And sure enough, 700 years later, it's the same patch of land. And Isaiah is long gone. He's in the ground. We've got a slightly eccentric guy called John. And he's going around and he's beginning to quote Isaiah again. It's like the prophets are just beginning to come to life again. It's beginning to quote them. What do you think? Watch out. It's all about to come true. Watch this space. Prepare the way of the Lord. 
And in Luke 4, we see John's cousin, somebody who's not known, Jesus baptized, he's tempted, and he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's on his way back to Nazareth, the town that he grew up in. And he goes straight to the synagogue. He stands up. He unrolls his scroll. They're all looking at him, thinking, this is a carpenter's son. What's about to happen? He unrolls his scroll. And of all of the Old Testament to choose from to launch his ministry, what does he choose? But Isaiah 61. Have everything to choose from. He decides to read that. And he's launching his ministry. It's a campaign of healing and justice. And this is what he's opening the campaign with. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He quotes the whole chapter. In American politics, this would be called the stump speech. Actually, sorry, that's wrong. He doesn't quote the whole chapter. But he, yeah, in American politics, this would be called the stump speech. And back in my uni days, I was at Falmer, and I did my dissertation on Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign for president. And Bill Clinton did what most candidates do when they're about to launch their campaign. And he returned to the town he grew up in. So for him, that was Little Rock in Arkansas. And with with help of the people around him, he wrote a speech, a speech that so summed up who Bill Clinton was and what he was going to offer to the country through his, his campaign and his presidency. That what he would basically do is repeat that speech, but with different words. So just basically rehash it two, three, four times a day, state to state to state. He'd go and repeat that speech. And it is a really significant speech, the stump speech, that a candidate makes. Because you've really got a few words to say, this is what I'm about. This is who I am. And it becomes the launch pad for the campaign. So it's the starting gun for it. And that's what we see in Luke 4, Jesus doing. We see him choosing a passage that so distills, so sums up what he's about and who he is, that it becomes the starting gun for his whole ministry. He's gone back to his childhood town and he's chosen it from the Old Testament. And when he finishes reading it in the synagogue, he sits down. And it says in Luke 4, all their eyes are fixed on him. They're thinking, who is this guy speaking with so much authority? And up until this point, he's just quoted it. But they're looking at him as he sits. And he says, today, this is all fulfilled in your hearing. And the minute he says it, the clock's on for how long he's dead before he's dead. It's an outrageous thing to say. He's basically saying, I am the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies are coming to bear in me. I am the one that all history has been pointing to. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the rescue plan. It's an out- and it is an outrageous claim. It's me. It's all about me. I'm good news to the poor. I set the captives free. I bind up the brokenhearted. All of this is fulfilled in me. I am Isaiah 61. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And if, if this chapter, if Isaiah 61 had human features, it would look like the face of Jesus because he is the, he is the summing up of it. It completely distills who he is. It completely sums him up. And it's not that surprising how much violence that claim attracts, is it? You think, it's, if it's not true, it's an awful thing to say, isn't it? If it's not true. And, uh, and, and they are shocked. And yeah, within three years, he's dead. 
And when we read Isaiah 61 and chapters like this, we've got to make sure we read it through the person of Jesus. First and foremost, it's about him. It's not us to the rescue. It's him. The only reason we ever get to be part of this and we ever get to pray that chapter over each other is because we are in him. It's not about it. We can't leapfrog him. The only reason it's true of us is because we're in Christ. But it's first true of him. It's a messianic prophecy. It's about becoming Messiah. And we get to share in it because we get to be in Christ. But we can't take it away from its real source of power, which is him and his life. Because we don't bring much to the table, do we? I just want to show a short clip, and this is on a slightly lighter note, but I think it illustrates the point really well. Um, And just to lead into the clip a bit, because it comes into it quite quickly, we've got Simba and Nala. This is the Lion King. Okay, So we've got Simba and Nala, the lion cubs, and they've just wandered into the elephant graveyard. And they're cornered by the hyenas, and the hyenas have challenged them to roar. And this is what happens when they're challenged to roar. And we're like the cubs, aren't we? We have wandered into the elephant graveyard sometimes of other people's lives. And when we're challenged to roar, we don't have much in ourselves, but we open our mouth and the roar of the Lion of Judah comes from behind us. And it's the roar of our father, isn't it? It's not our own power. It's not our own strength, our own ability. We open our mouth and we trust that from behind us comes the Lion of Judah's roar and that his carries weight and authority, and carries the impact that it needs on people's hearts as well. He is the holder of all authority, and he's the fulfillment of the Lion of Judah prophecy, and he's the fulfillment of the suffering servant that we've heard about before. He's the coming king. He's the binder of the broken hearts. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament. It comes together in him. It comes together in Jesus And like I said before, the only reason these things really are true of us at all is because we're in him. We're in Christ. And they are firstly true of him. They're firstly true of him, aren't they? And that is much better news for us and much better news for mission because it means that we get to be bound up. We get to bring our grief and our heartache and our loss and our suffering. We can bring it to him and be confident that he binds us up but that he also goes with us and gives us authority to go and bind other people up because we're in him. He is the true binder of the brokenhearted. And the sovereign God who weighs the mountains in his hands and who calls out starry hosts name by name by name, he knows them all. He comes with an oil of healing and he takes time and he sits beside you And he bandages you and binds you and he restores you. And there is no loss that is too small for him. And there is no loss that is too big for him. There's no outpouring of grief before him that makes him just turn his face away. And thinks, just, I I can't deal with this. Don't spill your problems on me. He never does that. He never turns his face away from you. He turned his face away from his son at the cross and he never turns his face away from you. He comes to bind you. He's not worried about being overwhelmed. He is fully capable. He is fully competent. He has all the ability that he needs to bind up every broken-hearted person and it doesn't worry him. It says in Isaiah that a bruised reed, he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. 
And a bruised reed is a bit like the equivalent of the grapes that you find at the end of the week at the bottom of the fruit bowl, isn't it? You go shopping on shopping day and you buy fresh fruit and you know it's shopping day because it's all fresh and it sits there. And a week later, it's still sitting there, but it's not fresh anymore. And you look at the bananas and you think, okay, at least I can, I can make banana bread or something out of them. And then you find the last few grapes on the stalk and you think, these are not really fit for purpose. I don't know what to do with these. This is like, these are beyond repair. And he says, no, I've got a plan for the bruised reed. I don't snap it, I take it. And the smouldering wick, the candle at the end of the evening, and it's almost out. And you think, oh, just blow that, blow that one out. It's almost gone anyway. And he says, no, because I can see the potential for that. I can see the potential for that to be restored to a fire. He is fully able to restore and repair every heart. And much more can be mended than we would like to believe sometimes. And if I go back to the 13-year-old girl, Elizabeth, she's being held captive in a brothel, and she's forced to sleep with between 10 and 15 guys a day. And she is someone who, on paper, should have a heart that is beyond repair. Just, like, just the level of abuse, the nightmares, the memories, the pain, the voices. It should, she, should, it, she should not be restorable. On paper, it's too complex. It's too difficult. And when a Christian human rights group that Kings regularly gives to, called IJM, went in to do a raid with local police, they rescued Elizabeth a day before her first anniversary of being in the brothel. And she was reunited with her family. And um, Sharon Cohn Wu, who spoke at Kings about six years ago, was in contact with Elizabeth for several years after her rescue because she was just this incredible encouragement of clinging to God in almost like the worst adversity you could imagine. And Sharon went to her and said, would you mind, could you just read me Psalm 27 again? The Lord is my light and my salvation. It would just encourage me so much for you to read that to me. And Elizabeth said, no, I won't read Psalm 27 to you, but I will read Psalm 3. I'll read you this one. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And you think... That's God, isn't it? He lifts. He has the ability to lift any head. He can heal any broken heart. He can bind it up. He is fully able. He is not worried. This is not beyond his ability level. And believing that Jesus is the God of the brokenhearted, it doesn't make us lazy in mission. It it motivates us because it persuades he's actually able to do it. He can actually deliver upon his promises. And it persuaded Sharon Cohn Wu to give up her career in corporate law to work for IJM. And the conviction in me that there are thousands of girls sitting in brothels this morning that could have their broken hearts bound up and could be restored persuades me to pray for her and to give to her. We don't need to be blinded by complexity because we can be confident that he's actually able to deliver. It persuades even the Freedom Ministry team just to give up hours of their time to sit with people, to go through steps of freedom and to talk and pray, and not because they've got any magical powers in themselves, but because they believe God is fully able to bind up every broken heart and that he's willing, he's wanting it, and that there's no can of worms which once opened, he is not able to resolve. We worry about that, he doesn't. We've got confidence in the God who binds up the brokenhearted. And I'm guessing that is the testimony of many people in this room. 
that he takes the mess and the grief and the, the, just the complexity of our lives and he is able to bring restoration. That's why we're sitting here. That's the only reason we can be here. And there's going to be broken-hearted people in every workplace and classroom, every staff room, on every hospital ward, on every country on the globe, on every commuter train. And Emma, a friend of mine, is a teacher in the church, and she spends a lot of her time just sitting with children where mum's left dad or dad's left mum. There's been some sort of breakdown in the family, and they're broken-hearted, and she sits with them, and she's able to comfort them out of a comfort that she's received because her testimony is at that of God binding up her broken heart in the midst of family breakdown. And there will be caseworkers here who pray for their caseloads on the way to appointments and people who encourage stressed-out colleagues after awful staff meetings. There are broken-hearted people in every context, and he's able to use us because we're in him. And God's used, like, multiple people, really, to just minister to my brokenheartedness. In a small way, Inspire have been really faithful in praying for our family, and people have given us gifts, and just food and left stuff on our doorstep, and Freedom Team members have sat with me, and family and friends have cried with us and have stood by us. And we, it's not us to the rescue, is it? I thought it was, I did actually think to some extent that it was me to the rescue, that I was the strong one. It's him to the rescue. It's him to the rescue for us and for others. It's always him. I just want to read Isaiah 61 again, and then we're going to worship. But I just thought it's the two groups of people this morning. If you, want, if you would like to respond um, to be prayed for. And the first group is just, if you actually this morning think, do you know what, it's me. I am, I am brokenhearted in this particular situation. I'm desperately in need of him to come and heal a broken, my broken heart. And so if, you, if that's you, then do respond afterwards. And the second is people who feel particularly called to partner with God in binding up the brokenhearted and need to know his authority in it. And that might be in your professional life, in what you're doing for your job, or it might be in church life. But is it what if we just stand together? I'm just going to... Um, Rob's just going to start to play... If you can just close your eyes, and if you feel comfortable, just to put out your, put out your hands. And instead of hearing my voice reading Isaiah 61, just hear the voice of the one who's the true fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Hear Jesus' voice reading this aloud. Okay. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor.